Thanks very much, Jessica. I really appreciate this invitation and the chance to, uh, to talk about these issues. Uh, by the turnout, I can see there's a, a fair amount of interest uh, in these questions. It's been a significant public policy issue. It's having a big impact on uh, such things as the funding of the Department of Homeland Security, which runs out uh, later this week, unless they've settled it this morning. Um, I'll give a little bit of a background uh, here on these actions. First of all, prosecutorial discretion is inevitable in any enforcement regime, and especially whether it's acknowledged or not, and especially when resources uh, are short. Uh, we've been chronically short of sufficient resources to do all the enforcement that's potentially contemplated by the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, although Congress has made enormous strides, has done a lot more funding over the last 15 uh, to 20 years. Uh, Traditionally, the choices and the priorities for prosecutorial discretion uh, were very much decentralized within the immigration agencies, particularly back in the days of the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which existed until Homeland Security was created in 2003. Um, there were some efforts to try to centralize a little bit more, but then that got a real boost after the 1996 uh, amendments to the law, a very comprehensive law that was passed then in the name of tougher enforcement passed right before the 1996 elections, both congressional and presidential elections. Both sides were trying to show how they were tough on enforcement, partly because there was some disillusionment that had set in, real disillusionment that had set in then with an act passed 10 years earlier, uh, which had an, an amnesty or legalization program and some new enforcement measures that didn't work very well. Uh, the 1996 act sounded really tough. It had enacted a lot of harsh provisions. They weren't really very well designed to accomplish more effective enforcement. But they did result in some very um, poignant individual cases. Um, it, I mean, in the way in which this came about was that uh, there were there have traditionally been provisions on the on the books that allowed a form of discretion to be exercised by immigration judges in deportation proceedings when someone had a, a number of had lived in the country for a long time and had a lot of equities in the case. And that was decided case by case by immigration judges. In 1996, Congress decided to cut that way back. I was at the Immigration Service. I met with lots of members of Congress and staff and said, look, this is going to create a lot of really difficult cases and poignant situations. Do you really want to say there's no discretion left to deal with the following scenario, a sympathetic scenario? And oftentimes the, result, the answer we got was, yes, we want no discretion. We really want serious enforcement. Well, as of 1997, when the law went into effect, it only took a few weeks, and some of those cases came up, very poignant cases like that, uh, in many members' districts, and a lot of them started feeling the heat about that or felt bad about that. It resulted in a letter in 1999 from 28 members of Congress, a bipartisan group, but mostly Republicans, who basically said, these are really poignant cases. It was a letter to the Attorney General and the Commissioner of Immigration Service. You've got to develop a comprehensive prosecutorial discretion strategy to deal with these humanitarian cases. Um, Signers of that letter included some who had been very tough-minded during the 1996 law, including James Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin and Lamar Smith uh, of Texas. They wanted a systematic prosecutorial discretion policy. So th some additional memos were adopted uh, late in the Clinton administration. Uh, it continued in the Bush administration, setting out priorities, describing, and kind of trying to centralize prosecutorial discretion. These were pretty general standards, but they were really an effort to establish consistency and uniform policy instead of leaving it to each district director or each field officer. Uh, when the Obama administration came in, 
President Obama saw fit to appoint two graduates of this law school to key roles in immigration enforcement, Secretary Napolitano, Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, and John Morton, who became the director of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, both came in separately for independent reasons. They wanted to have a more systematic exercise of prosecutorial discretion according to centralized guidelines and wanted to improve that. Now that was, at that point, entirely separate from any question about some sort of better legal status for people who had been here for a long time because the whole focus at that time and hope and expectation was we'd get comprehensive immigration reform within a year or so and the legislation, which clearly would be a much better way to do it anyway, legislation would take care of that was if, if comprehensive reform was going to pass it was going to include some kind of legalization for people who had been here for a certain period of time. Uh, so that was, that, that developed separately uh, really as a kind of good, good government uh, approach. Uh, well, as you all know, the legislation stalled um, in those first couple of years. Didn't really get very far at all in those first couple of years. Somehow there was this other issue. I think it was something about health care that kind of got in the way of doing <laughs> of doing uh, a lot of these other things. Uh, and so, um, but nonetheless, there were some uh, memoranda, the so-called Morton memoranda, that were adopted around that time to give a more systematic outline of prosecutorial discretion. Um, as the legislation stalled, advocates pressed the administration um, for much more. They were concerned about what they saw as, quote, record deportations, although the deportations were pretty much at the level that Congress had appropriated for and that matched what uh, took place during the final year of the Bush administration. Um, a lot of focus there was on the DREAM Act. There was an effort to try to pass the DREAM Act later on. That was for people who had come here as children before the age of 16 and uh, had lived here for a certain number of years. Um, so there were some additional memos that were refined, but mostly the exercise of discretion under those memos simply meant that a removal proceeding was either dropped or was not initiated. It didn't give the person any particular documentation or official work authorization. In June of 2012, Secretary Napolitano announced DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and that was uh, that provided a process for getting a somewhat more formalized, although still not really a status, a somewhat more formalized recognition that prosecutorial discretion had been exercised in your favor, called deferred action, uh, for a two-year period for people who had come before the age of 16 and been in the United States for five years, and they had to be under age 31 on the date of that announcement in June. Uh, the administration officials, as they announced that, uh, it was a very close-hold process. A lot of people I've learned later were very concerned about how would it be received. It turned out it was pretty well received. Polls showed about two to one that Americans supported this. They, they understood that these were people who weren't accountable for the violation that led to their presence and that they, a lot of them knew no, new life nowhere else uh, than in the United States. Um, so they would apply to U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the benefits granting agency, and get uh, this recognition. And they could get work authorization. Now this was not an Obama administration innovation to give work authorization, regulations adopted under the Reagan administration had provided that people who had deferred action could apply for work authorization and get it if they showed economic need. Um, in 2013, after the uh, 2012 election, of course, you know, there were new hopes for comprehensive immigration reform. The Senate actually accomplished a remarkable feat of passing a bill by 68 to 32, obviously a bipartisan bill. Uh, and there were high hopes it would move forward in the House, but um, that didn't happen. Uh, and as those hopes faded, uh, more and more pressure was put on Obama by a number of uh, activist groups uh, to do something 
unilaterally something much more dramatic using executive powers. And the President promised that in a Rose Garden speech in July of uh, 2014, said he would do it by Labor Day. A lot of Democratic candidates got real nervous about that as the elections were getting closer. He decided to postpone it. Uh, and then uh, uh, the party took another shellacking anyway. Um, but, uh, but he went ahead and did make his announcement in November on November 20th of 2014. So just very briefly what it did, it was it expanded the DACA program slightly. It moved up the, the cutoff dates. People present for five years as of January of this year could qualify. Um, they still had to come before the age of 16 and there was no upper limit. So even people over the age of 31 could, could apply for this expanded DACA. Uh, then the more um, controversial part, um, they adopted a program called DAPA, Deferred Action for Parental Accountability, as it was first called. Now it's called Deferred Action for Parents of Americans. In any event, it covers those who are in the United States and haven't committed certain crimes, uh, any crime of a certain level of seriousness, um, who have children who are U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents. The second group has got to be very small, but the first one's uh, potentially uh, quite large, many millions, uh, several million people, maybe four million people covered by that. Uh, knowing there would be legal controversy, the administration released an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, John's old office, uh, at the Department of Justice, saying that DAPA was justified. But it also went ahead and said, well, another proposal that had been, for which uh, guidance had been requested, was not appropriate. That was to provide this kind of deferred action for the parents of children who had received DACA relief. And it's a lengthy argument and it's been the grist for a lot of, uh, a, a lot of controversy and discussion. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it some uh, uh, later on. Um, the, um, at the same time, the priorities uh, set forth in the Morton memos were changed, expanded a bit, uh, more focused now just on border cases, people who've committed crimes, and anybody who entered after January 1st of 2014. Those are the new priorities. So that's a different form of exercise of prosecutorial discretion. People who are left out, who are not enforced against under that, won't necessarily get deferred action. They will simply, there simply will not be enforcement action. And then there's the other groups, DACA and DAPA groups, who will get deferred action and um, most likely work authorization as well. This has triggered lawsuits, uh, several states filed. Um, we'll talk about that later on. And of course, Congress has been quite upset about the, uh, this action. And, uh, the, uh, and when Congress passed funding uh, late last year for all the other departments, they gave only a short continuing resolution to the Department of Homeland Security that runs out this week. And the bill funding Homeland Security passed by the House also had a number of measures meant to thwart uh, these new exercises of prosecutorial discretion. Um, We'll talk about that later on. The, the district judge ruled uh, within the past week in Texas, in Brownsville, Texas, to find that DAPA was uh, unauthorized. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for that um, very helpful and detailed overview. Um, that brings us right into the substance of the, um, the question before us today, which is, were the president's actions constitutional? Um, you know, taking these immigration actions via executive order and then also through um, DHS, was that um, a constitutional exercise of his presidential power? So, Professor Martin, would you like to start us off with that? 
Yes, I'll, I'll do that. We were, this is actually, you, you can, uh, this was going to be Cypre-Kosh at this point, and then I was going to... We have the empty chair <laughs> problem. So, so uh, we'll stipulate that Cy offered great insights here, and then I'll, I'll provide uh, some of my thoughts. Um, first of all, I, I want to start uh, with a quote from Justice Jackson's magnificent opinion in uh, the Youngstown case. It's been referred to a lot. Um, those of you who have been in my classes know that I, I like to uh, emphasize this, but, but there's, there's a, a lot of excellent insights that Jackson provided, in part based on his experience uh, as Attorney General. And he warned against, and I quote, the infirmity of confusing the issue of a power's validity with the cause it is invoked to promote, of confounding the permanent uh, executive office with its temporary occupant. The tendency is strong to emphasize transient results upon policies and lose sight of the enduring consequences upon the balanced power structure of our republic. That's a really good warning, and I think one that applies with full force, actually, to both sides uh, of this debate. It's been, it's, a lot of it's been clouded by whether you think the particular action, the particular measures for people uh, who are here in undocumented status uh, are, are legitimate. Um, and actually, it, it, it's framed a big dilemma for me personally, as I've wrestled with some of these issues, because I do support the basic policy. I think there should be some f way to uh, move towards full legal status for people who've been here for many years and haven't committed crimes. I say that not only because of the kind of humanitarian component of that, but I think that would be a major step that would enable us to get serious about effective enforcement for the future. I think legalization, though it should be done by legislation, is a major enforcement empowering measure for the future, uh, and and uh, and so I, I that's that's where I come out on that. Um, but I have real concerns about about the process, and I'll try to articulate a few few of them here. I'm going to start by just reflecting a little bit on what I think are bad arguments, both for and against, especially the deferred action measures. Um, First of all, first bad argument against that was one that was floated around the right at in, in the week that DACA was announced, and it resulted in a lawsuit filed by several ICE officers, uh, and their attorney was Chris Kobach, whom you may have heard of, a uh, law professor who's the attorney general of uh, Kansas, but he, that, that doesn't seem to be a full-time job because he's been very much involved in... Uh, uh, sparking uh, legislative efforts and lawsuits in, in many parts of the country. He was a key player in um, helping to design the Arizona, the restrictive Arizona law that went to the Supreme Court. Uh, in any event, th the claim there was that the statute leaves no discretion whatsoever for any agent who encounters, at least who encounters someone who has entered the country without inspection. And it goes through some language, it puts some language together from several pieces of the statute and says there's no discretion. Whenever an agent finds an entrant without inspection, they have to go ahead and, and proceed against them. Now that, um, I think, is, uh, for a lot of technical reasons I won't go into, is, is just a complete misreading of what Congress intended when it adopted uh, those measures. Also, it would be a bizarre, a bizarre measure. Congress decided that one place where there should be no discretion would be people who entered without inspection. Even if you regard that as a as a as a as a, an offense that should result in in uh, in enforcement, you would have to drop your action to go pick up someone who is was a serious criminal, and you just got information that um, that he's at a certain place, and you just suddenly you you find out, oh, here's an entrant without inspection in front of me. I have to go uh, deport him. I, I uh, spelled this out if you want to look it up online, the Yale Law Journal online about the time that the lawsuit was filed. I spelled out. 
uh, at some length my arguments against it both as a matter of policy and as a matter of law. Uh, second one uh, has more force to it, um, a claim that prosecutorial discretion really sh cannot operate in this categorical way. It should be case by case to do it categorically is somehow inconsistent with the notion of prosecutorial discretion. Uh, I think that um, there are certain elements, certain ways in which that, that, that has some force, but the general idea that categories don't, uh, shouldn't be used is, is simply wrong. I say that because centralized guidance is valuable and important. It doesn't make sense. When Congress leaves discretion in a statute, in a statutory scheme or in the operation, it doesn't make sense to say that that leaves uh, leaves it just to each individual officer without guidance. There should be centralized guidance. There's a value to uniformity. There's also a value to the, to the extent that there's discretion. There are policy calls that will be made about which elements of the enforcement population uh, you want to focus on. Those should be made as a matter of democratic theory, I think, by those who are, um, at least under the guidance of those who are accountable to the voters, ultimately all the way up um, to the president. Um, so... Um, uh, and to give that kind of guidance, some of it is going to be to be effective and to be something you can monitor and manage. It's going to sometimes have some things that look like pretty categorical uh, statements. So I don't think you can fault it uh, on that on that basis. A stronger argument along these lines, though, is to say, well, when you make public announcements about it, and particularly when you open up an application process, you are reducing any possible deterrent effect from the law and the books. Um, because a lot of times it's not just, I mean, we lose sight of this, but people comply with the law not just because there's a policeman right there ready to, uh, uh, to, to apply sanctions to them, but because they know the law's on the books and at some point they decide, well, okay, it's, it, it's long enough. I don't want to live in this uncertainty about what's going to happen. I will choose to comply with the law, which in this context would mean to leave and go home. And there's, there are a lot of people who work in the country for several years and do then choose to leave uh, and go home. Um, the third argument that I think is not a very strong one uh, is prosecutorial discretion is okay to the extent that it amounts to just simple non-enforcement, but when it includes any kind of affirmative benefits like work authorization in this context, it goes too far. Professor Michael McConnell, former Judge Michael McConnell, has made this argument just recently in the Wall Street Journal, and several others have done that. And I think on, on its face, initially, it, it contains a lot of plausibility, because we think of this in the context of the criminal justice system. A prosecutor... Um, who decides not to prosecute a case doesn't say, oh, and by the way, here's a really good job for you, uh, or here's a, 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 a number of public benefits that you'll receive because we've decided not to enforce the criminal law, although technically it might have uh, applied to you. Uh, but I think that's, uh, I think that's a, the wrong way to look at it. Different regulatory regimes, different control regimes have different textures and qualities, and it's an inevitable part of just what the immigration regulation business is that if you make a decision to let someone say not to enforce, certain other things follow in a way that they don't in the criminal, the criminal justice system. In, in most people, citizens who are not prosecuted, they in any event, their background rules, they have full access to the employment market. Um, I, I think for almost anybody who looks at this system, they, they would say, including the, the signers of that 1999 letter, well, there are some people who ought to get prosecutorial discretion. And then what are you going to do with them? They're supposed to live here by begging on the streets? Of course, what comes with it would, would need to be work authorization. It should be measured, but it, it, it's not at all surprising that that would be the case. And that's been part of the process in deferred action and in a sort of related 
measure called parole for many, many, many years. Uh, so I think that's appropriate, and of course regulations support it that have been on the books for uh, 30 plus years. Uh, now, what about bad arguments for this kind of a measure? Well, one that I think is particularly unfortunate is that, well, the president had to act because Congress didn't. They had all this time to act and to proceed, um, and, um, uh, and they didn't act about it. So the president had to address this sort of issues. Well, that just, that's not consistent with our system of government. There are laws on the books. They may be ill-designed. There may be unfortunate parts of it. There may be parts of it that, different parts of it that many of us would disagree with as a matter of policy. But it's a premise that when a statute is enacted, that remains the law on the books, even when there's a change of administration, even when there's polls that show people don't like certain parts of it, that remains on the books until we go through the full process uh, to amend it, uh, and, and it endures. Um, second bad argument in favor is that, well, scale doesn't matter. If you concede that prosecutorial discretion is okay and inevitable, then the president can go at least as far as this DAPA regime, which will cover, with DAPA and DACA, potentially it covers 5 million out of the estimated 11 million people uh, who are in the country uh, without status. Um, I don't think that works. I mean, there clearly there are limits. The Supreme Court has endorsed broad prosecutorial discretion, not subject to judicial review in several cases, including a case called Heckler versus Cheney. But they have noted that there are limits if the discretion amounts to a kind of abdication, complete abdication of enforcement responsibilities. And also, uh, the, the obligation to faithfully execute the law plays in here, and for me, it includes not only the substantive laws, but also appropriations. Appropriations are done by law, according to the Constitution. They're part of the laws the President has to faithfully enforce. That's part of why there have been a high level of deportations, because Congress enacted high level of enforcement resources, and the President has a lot of choice about how to use it, but he does have to, to use that. So, finally, uh, where, does, where does this leave us? I don't think there are clear boundary lines uh, on the range, on the scale. Uh, let me put it differently. I, I think DACA was justified, legally justified, very sound. It still left a lot of room for um, using the full range of enforcement resources against people who weren't covered in that setting. It was more appropriate to use categorical approaches there, in my view, because this is a population that would be, those who've been here for five years and came as children, is, I, I, I think, remarkably uh, unlikely to be affected by the usual sorts of deterrent measures. People who came as adults and have connections and remember life back in the, in, in the home country are more likely to, uh, the country of, of nativity are, are, are more likely to be affected by that. I don't think that's the case for at least most of the people who fell within the, the DACA category. So where do, you, where do you draw the line? Well, uh, I've said, I've been quoted as saying it's in several settings that uh, it skated to the edge of DAPA, skated to the edge of, of uh, the president's legal authority. Um, I've refrained from saying that, uh, that the president fell into the water uh, at the edge there. Um, I, I do think in any case, it's not the kind of, um, even if it's legally questionable or maybe went too far, it's not the kind of thing that should lend itself to a judicial remedy. I don't think it amounted to an abdication. But even if it's legal, and this is the point I really want to make, it's something that's, I think, going to come to be regretted by the Democratic Party in particular uh, next time there is a Republican president. In general, uh, 
the Democratic Party has a wider range of regulatory regimes that they want to sustain and see carefully enforced if they were once able to actually get it enacted. I think of the Affordable Care Act and uh, Consumer Finance Protection Board as some recent examples, but there are several others. Um, and there's some complications on those, but but in general, I think that's that's the case, and um, they're going to want to say, and, and I think we generally, as as citizens, ought to say that we that enacted laws will endure until amendments are passed that leap all the regular legislative hurdles. Um, so um, Eric Posner, Professor Eric Posner, wrote a very powerful piece in the New Republic, saying that this was a big gift to future Republican presidents who may find lots of ways to gut or undercut regulatory regimes by making a similar kind of resources argument saying, well, I'm going to apply enforcement elsewhere and, gee, this, uh, among all the provisions of the tax code, this tax provision that requires a penalty if uh, someone doesn't get and uh, doesn't pursue the individual mandate to be covered by health insurance, that's not very important. We're just not going to enforce that. And, of course, that would mean, I think, the financial collapse of, of that entire uh, statute. Um, Woodrow Wilson, um, in his book on congressional government, he, he said, every political constitution in which different bodies share the supreme power is only enabled to exist by the forbearance of those bodies among whom this power is distributed. So there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily legal lines, but they're kind of bounds of forbearance or custom uh, to keep things working. I think this crossed an important line of forbearance, and, and it's regrettable. It's not catastrophic. It, it, it can work. We can find ways to go beyond this, but uh, there are uh, certain uh, uh, difficult features about it. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Martin. Professor Harrison, do you have anything to add on well, presidential powers? Um, I, first, let me say, I, I'm, I'm prepared to talk while people get Chipotle. Okay. I realize what our priorities are here. <laughs> um, so uh, go, go ahead, and I'll just start. Uh, <laughs> not all at once. <laughs> right, not all at once. Try, try to form an orderly line. But while, but, but while, while you're doing that, should I just should talk about litigating this in general? Sure. Okay. Well, while, I, I am going to talk while you're in the Keep it down, please, line. if you're... So, as I say, I, under, I understand what our priorities are here. The, 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 fir, the first thing I'll, I'll say during the introductions, I was uh, briefly mixed up with Sai Prakash, and you know, have, here, here's, here's, how to, here's how to tell us apart. Because at, at Virginia, of course, we worship the past, and so the best way to remember something is to associate it with famous Virginians. And the way to do that is Sai is the Monroe professor, I am the Madison professor. And just as Monroe was taller than Madison, Sai is taller than I am. Um, so that's how you that's how you know who is who here. The first the first thing I want to say, I am I am mainly going to talk about how this this issue can be litigated and whether it can be litigated because I'm I'm a proceduralist and I I don't know anything about the substance of the law. Um, I'll say a few things about presidential power, but mainly in the in the in the context of how this how this set of questions, the the president's latest policy, it can get into get into court. And the first the first thing I want to say, picking up on what Dave was saying right at the end of his talk, is that it's it is important to understand that it is possible, depending on one's sort of policy views or partisan affiliation or whatever, to be on to be on either side of an issue like this, 
Dave mentioned Youngstown Sheet and Tube and Justice Jackson's famous opinion in that. I was at the Office of Legal Counsel during the first, I worked in the the, the H.W. Bush administration, and and so in the in the run, not during Youngstown. There, we we had we had somebody there who had who had been at Justice since the late 1940s, and had been on the brief in Youngstown Sheet and Tube. Herman Marcuse, um, who who finally retired uh, in his 90s and died a couple of years ago at 101. Um, and when 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 Herman when Herman died, uh, the Justice Department lost a lot of institutional memory. But what I wanted to say about the being at, at, at OLC during the first Gulf War is, of course, OLC then is going to get the question, well, can the president act, act unilaterally? Ultimately, there was an authorization for the use of military force, so it wasn't necessary. And one of the things we did was look at the most recent major, or one of the, one of the most important major debates about this in Congress, which was about the Korean War. And of course, in the Korean War, with a Democratic president uh, launching a war without explicit congressional authorization, all of the Democrats said that's totally constitutional. And all of the Republicans said that's totally unconstitutional. And then for the Gulf War, all the Democrats said that's totally unconstitutional. And all the Republicans said that's totally constitutional. So as I say, it's important to see that you can go around on this. And more specifically on the topics I'm about to discuss, first the possibility that members of Congress or legislative houses might be able to bring lawsuits about this. About I've, I've re recently written something about that. I'm only going to say a little bit about that. The judge I clerked for, Robert Bork, a reasonably well-known conservative, was was spent much of his time while on the D.C. Circuit denouncing the D.C. Circuit's cases that said, yes, members of Congress can sue over various legal and constitutional questions. So he was dead set against congressional standing. Similarly, at the time, both when I was clerking for Bork and since this stretched on forever, while I was at the Justice Department, there was a lawsuit called the Adams litigation that had conservatives very much up in arms. And the structure of the Adams litigation was that some people who were beneficiaries of regulation sued a federal agency saying some acts of Congress were not being adequately enforced. And a district judge gave relief, told the agency that it had to take certain enforcement measures. And as I said, conservatives were outraged about this. And now, well, again, you know, as we as we say, what goes around it comes around. So it's it's important to understand that these questions are not about whatever is the current configuration of policy and partisan interests with respect to them. But at least in principle, they are they are legal questions that are more general and more and more abstract than that. As I say, I'm going to say just a little bit, although it's gotten a lot of attention now, it's of less practical importance because of the lawsuit going on in Texas. I'm going to say just a little bit about the possibility that's been raised, something the House of Representatives has authorized, lawsuits by members of Congress or by a House of Congress or by both houses of Congress, although I think probably if this would be brought by House of Congress, it would just be by the, by the House of Representatives against the president or other executive officers on the grounds that the president or other executive officers have failed to carry out the law. Article 2 of the Constitution says the president is, is obliged faithfully to, to execute the laws. When I, when I left the Office of Legal Counsel um, on January 19th, 
1992. I left, I left on my desk a copy of the Constitution open to Article 2, um, just, in, just in case they might need it. Um, and, one of the, and one of the things that Article 2 says is the President must take care that the laws are faithfully executed. And so the idea has been floated that, well, Congress passes the laws, and therefore, when the president does, doesn't carry out the laws, he is somehow doing some kind of legally cognizable harm to Congress, the possessor of the legislative power. And that's the, that's the possibility, as I say, that I, I, I wrote something about recently, and then I'm going to discuss just briefly here. And what I'm going to say about it briefly is, first, the, quest, the question there is not the sort of question, not the rubric under which uh, the courts tend to address this, which is so-called Article Three uh, standing. And that's, that's true for two reasons. First, because ostensibly it took the Supreme Court about 30 years to figure this out, but eventually they figured it out. The question whether someone uh, is, is, a, is, is a proper party in principle, as far as Article Three is concerned, is a question separate from, the, from that, whether some substantive body of law makes that person a proper party, as we often say, gives that person a cause of action. Those are separate questions. For decades, the Supreme Court confused them. The D.C. Circuit, in its congressional standing cases, unfortunately confused them. It's important to keep them apart. The other reason that Article Three standing is really not terribly important in this context is the, the courts and the Supreme Court basically developed the Article Three standing doctrine in order to keep private people from enforcing the obligation in general that the laws be complied with. Rules designed for private people aren't about who in the government can bring what kind of lawsuit. Separate considerations go into who in the government can bring what kind of lawsuit. So if a House of Congress says, well, we're a House of Congress, and not a private person, and the Constitution or some statute authorizes us to bring a lawsuit. The question whether Article 3 permits that lawsuit is quite distinct from the question that the Article 3 standing doctrine has been, has been developed to address. The other thing I'll say briefly about congressional, congressional lawsuits like this is to put, to put my position in a nutshell, it's that they are inconsistent with separation of powers in the sense that they are inconsistent with the grant of the executive power to one person, one institution, and the grant of the legislative power to another, another set of institutions. The result of separation of powers is that because the legislative power and the executive power are distinct and are vested separately, the consequence of that is, yes, the president does have an obligation to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. That obligation does not run to Congress. It runs to the people, it runs to the United States, it runs to however you want to put it, but the executive is not an agent of Congress. The executive is, as it were, an agent of the law. And so it's a mistake to think, and if you, if you think of this as one might, a tort case, and ask, well, there's a duty, to whom does the duty run? It is a mistake to think that the duty of the president, which is very real and is explicit in the Constitution, runs to Congress. That is, as I say, inconsistent with separation of powers. Um, I've written something about this that goes into mind-numbing detail about the analysis of that, and it's all fascinating, and you should all read it. Um, it's available on, on, on SSRN. The, 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 ma the main thing I want to talk about, because this is of more immediate importance, and I think the, this, is, this is something that has gotten into court and presents uh, questions of, of considerable practical significance is what, what about the kind of lawsuit that the states have brought that is underway 
in Texas under the Administrative Procedure Act. And, and that gives me the opportunity to talk about the APA, um, which is, of, which is of, of fundamental importance in the operation of the executive branch of the United States. And what I'm going to try to do there is just talk about what the crucial questions are, say a little bit about what I think about them, but I think it's more important to know what those issues are because they raise substantively some of the questions Dave was talking about, about the nature and extent of executive discretion under the immigration statutes. There are, there, are, there are a series of questions that have to be addressed that the district court in that case addressed in cases in which the states are parties. The first question, and again, keep these things straight, is, is there Article Three? The standing. I'll just say briefly, as the Supreme Court has articulated the Article Three, the standing doctrine. I think there. I think there is. The much more important question is: Are the states proper parties? Do they have a cause of action, as we say, under the Administrative Procedure Act? That is a that is a somewhat tricky question. I would say if the Administrative Procedure Act were just being interpreted in accordance with its text, the answer probably would be no. But of course. The Administrative Procedure Act has, you, this is one of those situations where you can barely see the text of the APA under the piles of judicial gloss. Um, and and one, one principle that emerges from the pile of judicial gloss is that the cause of action created by the APA is quite, is quite generous. It allows a whole lot of people to sue for judicial review of agency action. Um, I think, as I say, more generous than the, than the APA would support, um, but the Supreme Court says it is quite broad. Their, their standard is, is the plaintiff arguably within the zone of interests protected by the substantive statute that the plaintiff wants to say the agency is not complying with? I think it's, it's actually a little debatable whether the states, even though that test is, is quite capacious, it's a little debatable whether the states are within the zone of interest. When, when, when one way to put it to anthropomorphize is to ask, when Congress adopted the immigration statutes, who, was it, who did it care about? Who was it trying to, uh, trying to protect? To some extent is the answer the states. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. The states certainly make a lot of decisions that are affected by federal immigration policy. So probably the courts would say would say yes about yes about that. As I think, I, I think that that's that's open for debate, but I think probably the answer would be yes. The next and and more difficult and I and I think substantially uh, more doubtful question, and the the district judge resolved all of these in favor of the plaintiffs. Um, is whether these questions, the exercise of enforcement discretion, and I'm going to talk only about the exercise of enforcement discretion, not about the parts of the, the new policy that go to granting work permits, for example, um, whether this exercise of, of enforcement discretion is, as the APA puts it, committed to agency discretion by law. Because the APA says, in general, there's judicial review, but there are exceptions to that principle. One, one is when statutes preclude the judicial review. Another is when the issue is committed to agency discretion by law. That's an exception to judicial review under the APA. So if something is committed to agency discretion, no judicial review. The Administrative Procedure Act makes that clear. Um, and as, as Dave mentioned briefly, there's a Supreme Court case from the 19, 1980s, Heckler against Cheney, different Cheney. Um, and this is another situation in which you know what goes around comes around. The shoe may now be on the other foot. The question there was, can there be judicial review of a decision not to enforce? 
the decision not to enforce was by the FDA and the, under, under the Reagan administration, but not to seek enforcement with respect to the drugs used for lethal injection in uh, carrying out executions by the states. Not surprisingly, the Reagan administration took the position that there is, there is very substantial discretion here, therefore the decision whether to institute an enforcement proceeding um, in, in that, on, on that issue was committed agency discretion by law. There could be no the judicial review. The, the D.C. Circuit via Skelly Wright, the judge Dave Clerk for, um, said, no, it's not committed agency discretion. It is judicially reviewable. The Supreme Court reversed in Heckler against Cheney and erected a general presumption that, you know, the Reagan administration was all in favor of, erected a general presumption that the question whether to enforce, whether to bring some kind of proceeding, whether to take some other kind of enforcement action, is committed to agency discretion by law, precisely because the range of decisions that go into, into deciding whether to bring enforcement proceedings or some other kind of enforcement action are so wide-ranging that there basically are no legal standards for the courts to apply. And when there are no legal standards, then an issue is committed to agency discretion by law. So a central question in the litigation, then, is just how broad is executive enforcement discretion under the immigration statutes. If it, is, if it is very broad, and it's certainly pretty broad, if it is very broad, then this decision by the President and, and the Department of Homeland Security does fall into the, that, that exception. Supreme Court in Heckler against Cheney said it's a presumption. It's not a conclusive presumption. The presumption can be, can be rebutted. It can be rebutted, most importantly, by a statute that substantially constrains discretion. So the question, what does the statute mean about what the about what the executive can do is, is central to this. And if there is complete abdication of enforcement discretion, then probably, you know, this is a dictum because it wasn't presented by the facts in Heckler, but the Supreme Court's dicta um, are, are routinely treated as extremely important by the lower courts. If there is complete abdication, then there probably can be judicial review. Interesting question here, when the executive creates a, a broad range of cases in which it says we're not going to enforce, but there's another broad range of cases, the rest of the statute, where the executive says, yes, we are going to enforce, is that complete abdication, or is that an exercise of executive discretion to say he, here yes, here no? One interesting thing about that question, and, and people have been commenting on what the district judge did in Texas have made this point, this is the point at which the reviewability question very much depends on the merits, because how much executive discretion is there for enforcement goes to does this fall within the Heckler against Cheney presumption that non-enforcement is, 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 is committed agency discretion by law and so is not judicially reviewable. So that's, that's the first big question under the, under the APA, a very controversial one that depends in large measure on the substance of the immigration statutes and how much do they constrain the executive. The actual relief that the district judge gave in the Texas court case um, rested, which was, which was to enjoin the administration from carrying out the new policy, rested on the conclusion that the policy should have gone through notice and comment rulemaking. That's a procedural requirement imposed by the APA. If some decision needs to go through notice and comment and it doesn't, then the decision is invalid, even if, 
after it goes through notice and comment, it's okay. This is a standard phenomenon necessary to comply with the procedure. Failure to comply with the procedure means invalidity, even if, once the procedure is complied with, the decision would be okay under the law. Happens, happens all the time. And so, not surprisingly, there is a lot of litigation under the APA about what does and what does not have to go through the notice and comment process. Once again, there's an explicit provision in the Administrative Procedure Act that, deal, that deals with this. There's a general principle that says rules, which are decisions of general applicability, do have to go through notice and comment. But interpretive regulations and general policy statements do not have to go through notice and comment. So the question is, when the executive says our enforcement policy, they use the word on purpose, is as follows, is that a statement of policy or is it something other than a statement of policy and, and hence subject to the notice and comment requirement? Again, because the exception is for the statements of, statements of policy. This is a subject on which each of the different courts of appeals has its own body of doctrine. I'm sure one reason that this suit was brought in Texas is because the D.C. Circuit's body of doctrine on this question is relatively constraining on the agencies. I know less about the Fifth Circuit's doctrine. I'm going to guess it's less constraining, probably just because there is less of it. Um, and so at this, at this stage of the litigation, ultimately this might end up in the Supreme Court, but at this stage of the litigation, the relevant question is, well, what is Fifth Circuit doctrine? I don't know very much about Fifth Circuit doctrine, so I can just, I can just talk in general, in general terms and say what I think is the most interesting question. Certainly what the D.C. Circuit and some of the other courts of appeals have said is the crucial question that distinct, that's used to distinguish a statement of policy and what's often called a legislative or substantive rule is, was the agency seeking to bind its discretion? And here I think the interesting question is this. When an agency is seeking to bind its discretion over time, saying in the future, here is how we are going to act and we are now saying we must act that way in the future, the D.C. Circuit, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but the D.C. Circuit has said, well, that's the sort of thing that has to go through notice and comment because it's got these effects on agency discretion. The harder question, I think, and on, on which the cases, as, as far as I know them, have less resolving power, is what about the situation where the agency is operating, as it were, in space, not in time? where the head of the agency is saying to the other people, here is how you are supposed to do this right now, and if I change my mind tomorrow, I'll let you know. That is centralized control of the agency, one of the things that people who are in charge do. Does that, in the important sense, constrain agency discretion? I think that's a much more difficult question. My inclination would be to say would be to say no. Although I should say I am I am somebody who takes a fairly broad view of the of the size of that exception for agency policy statements. Um, others, including some courts, take a substantially narrower view. That at least is I think the crucial question. And that one, by the way, that's the the first issue that I think is really important is substantive. It's about what are the immigrate what is the immigration and naturalization. Act require. This one is very much a question of administrative law itself um, that, that should be, at least in principle, uh, decided the same without regard to what the, issues, what the issues are. Those, I think, are the crucial questions about whether a court can reach the, the, the issues of the lawfulness of
of the of the executive's decision. We'll see how those how those play out right now. The government has asked the Fifth Circuit to stay the injunctions of the Fifth Circuit will be doing at least a preliminary pass on this as they do at the preliminary injunction stage. So we will be we'll be hearing more from the judges uh, pretty soon. I think as I say those are the basic issues that they're going to be grappling with.